Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. was I that helped thee to the crown. The last was I to feel thy tyranny. Oh, in the battle, think on Buckingham and fall in terror of thy guiltiness. Dream on. Dream on of bloody deeds and death. Fainting despair. Despairing, yield thy breath. And welcome to The Plays the Thing. You have joined us for Act 5 of Richard III, the final act in which Richard either lives happily ever after or he meets his demise. We're not going to ruin it for you so early in the podcast. But I will give you a little hint. His best friend, Buckingham, is now a ghost. And that's who you heard in that last audio clip The first that I helped thee to the crown, the last was I that felt thy tyranny. That was the ghost of Buckingham speaking to Richard on the battlefield. Emily Maeda, welcome back. We're here. We've made it to Act 5 of Richard III. Can't believe we've made it. I can't believe we made it. Are you feeling hopeful or pessimistic about the future of Richard III? 
uh, about Richard's chances of coming about out Richard's chances. Yeah. alive. I'm feeling pretty pessimistic. Are you? I'm going <laughs> to stay optimistic. Why. I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea why. You yeah, think I'm the chickens pessimistic about it? <laughs> What's that? Buckingham felt. No, yeah, I'm Buckingham feeling felt... pretty pessimistic about it. Yeah, not I feeling see. good about Richard's chances. Before we start, I want to do a little housekeeping. So the the company that platforms this show is the Circe Institute, C I R C E, and they are hosting a fall regional conference in Atlanta, Georgia, and I know that we have a lot of listeners in Atlanta because I am in Atlanta. <laughs> I will be speaking at the conference October 21st, 20th and 21st. And we encourage you to come. If you've never been to a Circe conference, you will enjoy yourself. I promise. And you will meet like-minded people. Emily and I met by sheer coincidence. I sat down in a seat next to Emily um, gosh, eight years ago now, Emily, at a Circe conference. And so that is kind of a testament to, you're going to find your people at a Circe conference. If you're listening to this show, I believe you're going to find the people. Um, the conference is called Lift Up Your Hearts, and it's taking a little riff on a C.S. Lewis quote about how we are too easily satisfied. We are too easily satisfied Quote, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Please join us October 21st and 22nd in Powder Springs, Georgia, a suburb of Atlanta. We would love to see you there, and I would love to shake your hand if you're a listener to the show. Okay, Emily, here we are. Buckingham, even gets killed as we predicted mm -hmm. early on in this scene and Richard soon gets taken to the battlefield. He is going to battle Richmond and his army. And that's where we are. That's kind of how this, how this thing opens. I want to dwell for just a moment on Buckingham. So early in act five, Buckingham, the right-hand man to Richard is facing his own death. And he mentions all Souls Day, I'm going to pause and say the name of my church hmm. in Atlanta is All Souls That's Anglican. Right. Um, the significance of the events unfold, the significance of these events starring Richard the Despot unfolding on All Souls Day, there's some meaning there, isn't there? There definitely is. So All Souls Day in the Christian calendar comes right after All Saints Day, which is November 1st coming up on it halloween which everybody's familiar with is the all hallows eve the eve to all saints day so all saints day is to remember the saints but all souls day is the day to remember all who have died and who have gone before us and he says it is so appropriate for me to die on this day because as have the other people who have died before him he now gets to list off like the final, he's the, he's the end of the final of all those who have been killed. So he says yeah. right at the start, Hastings and Edward's children, Gray and Rivers, Holy King Henry and thy fair son, Edward, Vaughn and all that have miscarried by underhand corrupted foul injustice, 
If that your moody, discontented souls do through the clouds behold this present hour, even for revenge, mock my destruction. This is All Souls Day, fellow, is it not? Why then, All Souls Day is my body's doomsday. So he is he is um, pulling out the Christian reference that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And he's mm. asking all those who have been slain to come and see, like he now has joined them, right? He now yeah. will be joining them. And um, this act has a lot of ghosts. And so it is appropriate that it begins with All Souls Day because he is calling them to come forward and to, I don't know, to haunt, not to haunt Richard. Would that be, well, yeah, to haunt Richard. Yeah. To join him in his um, quest for justice, even though he recognizes he's been part of the injustice. So he says that at the end, he says, this, this All Souls Day to my fearful soul is the determined respite of my wrongs. Mm. That high all-seer, which I dallied with, hath turned my feigned prayer in my head and given in earnest what I begged in jest. And then he calls on that, Margaret. Oh, go ahead. That that I dallied with. That's yes. an interesting, because I hear yes. that and I think that my like surface meaning interpretation of dallied is probably not the right one. Dallied is almost like, um, like flirted with. Oh, I think or, he's completely saying that. You think so? Yeah, because he's, I think he's referencing back when he's with Richard and they're pretending to pray and be holy men, right? Like he said, I'm playing, I played with God and I had feigned prayers. Yeah. You know, I messed around. I treated. See, so I, I I stand by my contention. I don't think flirt is the right word. I think like um, I treated God as a trifle. Yeah. Oh, you're thinking yeah. it more like. Yeah, I think of it in like I dallied with that is to like play with it, but to not to take it, not to have the proper right, reference. Right. Do it. Do God. Right. Yeah. Boy, right. That is such a good line. There are so many good lines in this play. There's so many good <laughs> lines in, in this earnest, play. Even in earnest, what I begged in jest, like he's getting what he um joked around about yeah and then he says margaret curse falls heavy on my neck when he quoth she shall split thy heart with sorrow remember margaret was a prophetess Mm. so margaret she gets her payback all the way along everybody laughs at her in the opening act and then she gets her payback finally let's talk about the let's talk about the ghosts this scene is a really, if you read the scene with the stage in mind, I think that you will see something really compelling that I don't know that I've seen in another Shakespeare play. Maybe you have, Emily, but... No, I was thinking... This parade of... Okay, good. Then I'm not alone thinking that I've not seen this before. This parade of ghosts comes one following the other and they stop by Richard's tent, and then the ghosts go to Richmond's tent, the opposing general. Mm-hmm. And the text has, you know, like the ghost of Anne talking to Richard, and then the ghost of Anne talking to Richmond. And after I got to the second or third ghost, I was like, oh, Shakespeare has put two tents on the stage, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Probably on either side of the stage. There's no stage directions. There are very few stage directions in Shakespeare. Right. Entrance, you know, Richard, exuet, Richard, however you say it. Right. And exunt. Exunt. So 
you have to imagine, okay, what exactly is this is the blocking here? And yeah. it seemed to me like this is clearly the blocking, though no stage direction is given. Richard's on one side of the stage, Richmond the other. The ghost speaks to Richard, crosses the state, and then speaks to Mm -hmm. Richmond. You saw it the same way in your mind's eye? Yeah, definitely. And well, and we skipped over um, scene two, but in that you get Richmond comes out, then they leave, and then Richard comes in, and then they leave. So it's this back and forth. And then, yeah, they they have to, right? I mean, that's what I have to. They have to both. So you've got the two camps collapsing in space, but clearly separated by a great rift, right? Yeah. It's interesting. I don't remember seeing this. Do you? I mean, I know that we, I had to have seen it, but I don't remember. It didn't stick out in my mind, the staging of it. I only remember the Laurence Olivier movie, and I don't remember how they did this either. I very clearly remember Richard in his tent. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. But I don't remember like cutting to Richmond, you know, right. in his tent. Maybe they did it. I just don't remember it. Right. Do you, okay, here's a question about the ghosts. It's, it could be read very on the nose. You know, like, here comes Queen Anne, here comes Buckingham, here come the two boys. Richard, you're really mean, and you're going to get your just desserts. Hey, Richmond, you're going to win. Great news, you're going to win, and then step off stage. So it could be read as kind of like, wait, man, this very sophisticated play all of a sudden became a sort of like lectury morality tale. Did you <laughs> did, did you read it that way? Was that a struggle for you? Well, if I'm going to be honest. Tell me. It was a little bit like that. Let's see. I'm going to get, um, let's do Lord Hastings. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bloody and guilty, guilty awake, and in the bloody battle, end thy days. Think on Lord Hastings, despair and die. To Richmond. Quiet, untroubled soul, awake, awake. (laughs) Fight and conquer for fair England's sake. I don't know, what do you think? It was a lot of despair and die and a lot of peace and joy. (laughs) Yeah, right, 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 right. The bad boy gets coal in his stocking. The good boy gets the sweets. (laughs) Okay, let me try to defend it. And I think maybe this is an allusion to a classic ancient trope. Okay. And I'm thinking especially of Odysseus and of Aeneas going into hell. Good call. In which, right? Doesn't it strike you that way? Yeah, it is like that. It's both in hell. You see, okay, hell in both the Aeneid and in the Odyssey. Let's do a little background. Yeah, the Odyssey. Everybody knows is you know one of two two of Homer's big masterpieces. Mm -hmm. The story of the travels of Odysseus and his men, Mm -hmm. and late in his in the book before he arrives back home to Ithaca. Odysseus travels, gosh, I can't even remember the scenario in which he travels to hell, but he goes down to the netherworld. The netherworld is not a Christian vision of the netherworld, which is a place of punishment. 
Good point. Um, this is an important thing to understand. <laughs> very important point. It's more of kind of like a murky yes. afterworld where souls reside, and it's almost like a limbo. Exactly. I, I mean, disembodied. Yeah. They're not fully. Yeah, they're shades. Totally. Yeah. So it's not a place of torment, but it's not a place of reward. It's kind of neither. It's just the holding pen after life. And what happens there? Not much. Not much happens there. But Odysseus, when he descends, he meets with his father, right? Isn't it his father? And his father gives a prediction about his future. And, the, you know, this prediction, Odysseus, when he returns to the real world, sails for Ithaca, regains his home, regains Penelope, um, is reunited with his son, and everything is great again. So it's a it's a kind of predictive yes, underworld. Same thing with Aeneas, right? And in Kisses. Same thing. Same thing. His father says, stay, stay on the course. You are headed to where you're supposed to be going. Because people are less familiar with the Aeneid, I'll just do a little bio of the Aeneid written by Virgil. Um, around the time of Christ. So it was written for Caesar Augustus, mm -hmm. the nephew of Julius Caesar. Um, a, a toll, excuse me, a census was taken at the beginning of Christ's life when he's a baby. And that, am I saying Caesar Augustus is the one who commissioned that census. So this is the time period that we're dealing with. This is kind of like the apex of the I hesitate to say the good years of the Roman <laughs> Empire, but but it's a time about? of peace. It, it's the Pax, it's the Pax Romana. Yeah, it is, yeah, yeah, that's fair. It's a pretty, it's a pretty bloody empire, and so it's hard. It's like exactly. when you say it's the, the it's one of the good moments. <laughs> yeah. You're like, what does that mean? Like when all of their um when all of their when their slaves weren't uprising when and subjected when subjected like, peoples were held fully in subjection. Right, right. That's what we mean by like the high points of the Roman Empire. Anyway, anyway. Um, Virgil wrote the Aeneid deliberately mm -hmm. mimicking both the Odyssey and the Iliad, mm -hmm. kind of combines them in one book. And he, he mimics a lot of Homer's scenes mm -hmm. as a great tribute to Homer, in which, as you just mentioned, Aeneas goes into the underworld, speaks to his father, and his mm -hmm. father gives a predictive prophecy mm -hmm. about his future, and that mm -hmm. future comes true. Yeah. So I kind of read this as a, a shout call. out to that. That's a good call. When you put it in that light, I can feel a little bit. Yeah, and you know, this is one of the times when you're reading a play and really how it's put onto stage yeah. is what makes it compelling, right? Because you read it, that's like, oh, bad, good. Bad, good, yep. but no, you're right. Yep. Uh, I think that's a really good call and a good way to frame it because, well, and if you take it with a framing from All Souls Day, right? Buckingham is called on them. Yes. To do this. Yes. And they are now coming and um, they're coming, you know, in the reality, which all Christians have held that the the people who have gone before us are not dead. They're just in another place. And so they're coming right. and they're saying, yes. And I mean, we've had the prediction from the beginning that um henry the sixth is coming right sorry not henry the sixth henry the seventh we're on to the seventh that he's coming that there is going to be like this redeemer right and henry the seventh richmond he's called richmond here but he's the he's the redeemer of england 
which is very nice for Shakespeare's current patrons, right? Very nice. <laughs> Since they're the very, and we <laughs> mentioned in Act One, like if anyone levels the accusation, like, oh, man, Shakespeare is just paying his bills with this play because he's, you know, it's a send up to his yeah. patrons. Yeah. Well, this at this point, it's like, yeah, I think he's guilty as charged. Like <laughs> all the condemnation of his assassinations are landing on Richard's heads. Yeah. And Richard, the peaceful good one who gets the sweets in his stockings. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. He's the beginning of a great line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So well, there like your, might be a little bit of that also. I like your reading. I think it's a good reading. I think it makes a lot of sense. Well, and and it's it's bringing together it is he is being set up as Richmond Henry the mm. is being set up as the one and that's how the play is going to end as the one who is going to bring peace, right? That who's yeah. finally going to put an end after Richard has now killed everybody from everybody's family, somebody has to put an end to this insanity. Right. 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 Because Richard has been an equal opportunity killer. That's the only thing, yeah. maybe, is that Margaret's prediction, right? Like our scene from last time when the women who have all represented various families are now all together. Now it's happening again. Everybody right. from the past is coming together to say, Richard must die. He must die. Right. There's a unified front now. Yeah. And that unified front has arrived on the battlefield. Yes. The, the unified front. Margaret had been trying the whole time and nobody would listen to her. Nobody would She's listen. finally gotten it. She's finally Nobody would listen. Yep. So after these ghosts pass through, this parade of ghosts, Richard wakes up. And this surprised me, Emily. This surprised me. Richard wakes up and he speaks to himself and he expresses, can you believe it? Contrition over his actions. Or at least a recognition of how he is kind of like a split person. I'm going to read the monologue. Good. And I would love to know what you think. Is this contrition or is this like recognition that I am a split person, that I am diabolical. And let's let's remember that kind of way that we talked about diabolical in a little bit of a technical way. Um, I believe it was act three. We mentioned a talk that we went to at the last Circe conference. Um, tell me the name of the speaker again. Um, it was D.C. Schindler, a philosopher Schindler. from, I think it's American Catholic University. We were so impressed by his talk because he talks about symbol as a thing that unites. He used this example of a broken bone that um, half was given to a family, the other half was given to a family, and these two families were forming a treaty with each other. And the way that they signified the treaty was through the symbol of a broken bone that could only be rematched, kind of meshed back together after the breaking by the two families that are mm -hmm. forming a union with each other. Mm -hmm. And conversely, the word diabolical is the breaking apart mm -hmm. of something of something that a symbol has joined. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that is a little bit of background. The question to you before I read this monologue, Emily, is do we see him 
recognizing himself as a diabolical character, or is this a speech of contrition? Let me read it. He wakes up. Give me another horse. Bind up my wounds. Have mercy, Jesu. Soft. But I did dream. O coward conscience, how how thou dost afflict me. The lights burn blue. It is now dead midnight. Cold, fearful drops stand on my trembling flesh. What do I fear? Myself? There is no one else by. Richard loves Richard. That is, I am I. Is there a murderer here? No. Yes. I am. (laughs) Then fly. What? From myself? Great reason why, lest I revenge. What? Myself upon myself? Hey, can we talk about this much so far? No, of course. I was going to read the whole thing, but if you want to pause, let's pause. Oh, sorry. If you want to read the whole thing. But no, 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 no. Let's pause. There are really crazy. Like Richard loves Richard. I and I, you know, it's this recognition of, um, I guess, the self in a very strange way. Am I afraid of myself? Did I, what, I don't know. What do you think? Those are, I'm going to flee from myself. Why? Lest I revenge. Is, is he speaking of like, lest I kill myself? Maybe. That's I, my I'm revenging first reading because I'm yeah. a murderer. So I do I do I kill myself, which I guess is a profound uh, I mean, question when you it is. have wielded violence. How does it stop? And yeah, and I would suspect, even though he says early on, have mercy, Jesu, nothing else seems to be like um him throwing himself yes. at the feet of the Redeemer Savior. Everything else is kind of like this internal. Who am I? Yeah. What am I? What have I done? And so, um, then fly. What from myself? Great reason why, lest I revenge. Mm-hmm. What? Myself upon myself? That sure sounds like, should I commit suicide Yeah, here? right, because I'm, what am I going to do? I've murdered so many. There's so much blood. Yeah. And then, alack, I love myself. <laughs> and then he continues, this is the real crucial question. Alack, I love myself. Wherefore? For any good that I myself have done unto myself? Oh, no. Alas, rather, I hate myself for fearful deeds committed by myself. Mm. Yeah, okay. I'm going to keep going. You interrupt when you have something. For hateful deeds committed by myself, I am a villain. Yet I lie. I am not. Fool of thyself, speak well. Fool, do not flatter. (laughs) My conscience hath a thousand several tongues, and every tongue brings in a several tale, and every tale condemns me for a villain. Perjury. Perjury in the highest degree. Murder, stem murder in the direst degree. All several sins, all used in each degree. Thronged to the bar, crying all guilty guilty. I shall despair. There is no creature loves me, and if I die, no soul shall pity me. Nay, wherefore should they, since I myself find in myself no pity to myself? Methoughts the souls of all that I had murdered came to my tent, and everyone did threat tomorrow's vengeance on the head of Richard. It's a remarkable monologue. I mean, just that 
You know what it reminds me of, and also a person whose name means split is Raskolnikov in Crime and Punishment. Yeah. Were you thinking that? Just this internal yeah. division. Oh, man. Um, and it's it's wild because like you he is a he does have so much self-love like that's what we get and yet there is this deep understanding that by what he has done he has not loved himself yeah <laughs> and that he is going to despair and that he says i will die and no soul will pity me oh i i have to say that was moving I know, to me it was to me as well because it is true yeah, created. He has caused so much grief and misery that no soul shall pity him. Oh, it's sad. So, there's a book that I really like, a biography of Shakespeare called "Will in the World" by oh, Stephen yeah. Greenblatt. I haven't read it, but you it's, have mentioned it. Oh, it's wonderful. And Stephen Greenblatt says that the the great accomplishment of shakespeare's later plays and richard the 3rd is not one of them mm -hmm. richard the play richard the 3rd is a relatively early play mm -hmm. he says that the the great turn that makes his that makes shakespeare's you know middle to late period tragedies so incredible is what stephen greenblatt calls inwardness uh, mm -hmm. which is a sort of like opaqueness yeah. of motive so we think about Hamlet, obviously, yeah. like what? What is driving this guy? Because if it's just revenge, the revenge should have taken place earlier in the play. Mm -hmm. um, Iago also, mm -hmm. Iago's drive to overturn Othello is really, yeah, hazy. Like maybe Iago slept with. Excuse me, maybe Othello slept with Iago's wife. There's like a uh. little casual mention of that, but very little, and so. And Greenblatt deliberately highlights Richard III, and he's like, Richard III kind of hasn't really developed this inwardness yet. Because, like we said at the beginning in Act One, Richard says everything yes. that he's going to do. Yes. But I wonder if this monologue is the beginning of that sort of, it's not opaque. Right. It's more like um, a debate with himself. Yes. In which... We okay, so when we come away from the monologue, do we really know what Richard's resolution is? Exactly. He he hates himself, right? And he knows that nobody has pity, but it doesn't seem opaque in the same way that like Hamlet and Iago's yeah. motives are. Yes, that's so fascinating. That's a really interesting way to think about it. Um, because well he he acknowledges that he's a murderer but he is not repentant yeah but he is sad i mean i i would take it that he is sad but we're not really sure is he sad that no soul will pity him and he he says i won't i don't even pity myself like i don't even have yeah. pity for myself it is a uh, i mean i was thinking of hamlet in sort of that way of the interiority or the yeah. self to self or the recognition that you can stand outside of yourself and talk to yourself. I mean, it's not the same at all, but it's a little bit like confessions with Augustine when he's talking to his own soul. Right. Yeah. I mean, because yeah. conf confessions, that's the first time something like that really happens. But yeah, that's an interesting way to think about it. Could it be that this is the start? I kind of feel that way a lot in this play, like even the ghosts, 
Yeah. Reminds you of Macbeth's later ghost, right? But he sort of pared it down a little bit. I feel like a lot of his other plays, like there's a lot of seeds of his other plays in this play. No doubt. No doubt. Think? I thought of the Macbeth um, banquet scene. Yes. In which um, Banquo, best friend to Macbeth, yeah. Macbeth murders him. And then Macbeth kind of like now having kind of crowned himself king steps to the banquet table and he knows that he's killed Banquo, but yeah. nobody else at the table knows yeah. that he's killed Banquo. There's an empty seat at the banquet table, presumably for Banquo because Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are, again, I'm, they've made this facade that, oh, Banquo will be along shortly, even though we know he's dead. <laughs> so yeah, the ghost visits Macbeth and just sits there, but his apparition is enough for condemnation. Yes. No, I think actually Banquo does speak. He does, but a nobody else times. can hear him, right? That's right. That's exactly so, right. Nobody else can. And that scene is terrifying. It's like he's taken this and distilled it because it's terrifying because you see Macbeth losing his mind, which a little bit here you feel is Richard losing his mind, right? Uh-huh. He's so uh-huh. You see Macbeth kind of losing his mind and like it's palpable sort of terror and he sees the dagger coming towards him. Yeah. But you see it because he because Shakespeare has distilled it. It has more it it punches more power. Yeah. Okay, wait, what do I want to say? It packs more power. That's what I want to say. Where it punches more power. Okay, great. Whatever, whatever <laughs> the right thing is to say. But you see that a lot. Like he there's a lot of words in this play. You can see that he hasn't distilled himself yet. Yes, I that's so true. It's so true. In um I think it's two gentlemen of Verona. I think maybe his earliest oh, play. Yeah, yeah, right. It is so full of wordplay and quibbles for kind of no reason. Yeah. And they're really funny. Yeah. Like, you know, you can tell, you can tell, like, this is a master with logic. Yeah. He's so good with, like, turning logic inside out. Yeah. Um, but it's not moving the plot forward. Maybe it's a little bit of characterization, but not much. Yeah. And, and, and you can see, but you can see... Um, that this is the great master having fun. And eventually, as he moves forward in his career, he gets like more and more and more acute. He's, yeah. I mean, even though the plays are long, they're getting razor sharp yeah. and laser focused on his themes and his, and his plots. Yeah. Yeah. And so, Richard III, he's not quite there yet, but it's still like what a total masterpiece this play has been. Completely. Yeah. I mean, just the fact that he has held all of these different characters, Uh (laughs) right? That's part of what gets overwhelming. Like even the scene in the last act with all of the women, he's holding Mm -hmm. all of these characters. And so it's a masterfully done that he can hold them all. But yeah, we don't, it, um, that essence of like what he's driving at is a little bit more diffused through this play. It is. Yeah, it is. I just want to, can we just pause in praise of Shakespeare? Yeah. I, I do this podcast because I just love him so much. I was in West Virginia this weekend. Oh, you I were? I was speaking at the, yeah, I was speaking at the West Virginia Shakespeare festival i've got two talks that i'm going to post on this website 
Part of what they are doing is there's a theater called the Alchemy Theater in Huntington, and they are putting on Shakespeare plays in West Virginia high schools. Oh, that's great. It's so great because they're just going to, they just perform wherever they're given to perform. So I went to go see them Friday morning. Uh, they performed at a, uh, actually it was just over the river in Ohio hmm. and they were performing on a stage that was like kind of up level from the cafeteria. Yeah. The cafetorium. This is a new thing. The cafetorium. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. And having performed in places like this, <laughs> yeah. this is a hard place oh, to perform. Yeah, really hard. Sure. Terrible acoustics. Yeah. Lighting is terrible. You can't do like big costume changes. There's yeah. no big spectacle or whatever. But these actors did great and they really had their audience. They had probably awesome. like a hundred students. And I was watching the audience because I was like, man, it's it was Julius Caesar there's yeah. new. And I was like, Julius Caesar is a talky, talky, talky play. How are these kids gonna do with this? And they did really well with it. And I was just thinking, I know Julius Caesar well. And I was just like, you know what? I'm just gonna listen to these words. Oh, nice. And the words are so wonderful. They are. They're so, there is so much deep psychology. Yes. And just kind of offhanded comments. Yes. And it was such a joy. And it just reminded me, oh my goodness, this man, no wonder we're doing all 37 of his plays and like really spending time with them because they are just magnificent. And whenever, honestly, Emily, Whenever I get disappointed about the state of the world, when I like, like I look at our political situation or whatever it is, I, I seriously sometimes think, okay, at least there was a Shakespeare. At least there was Shakespeare. I and at you. least there was a Socrates, you know? How about Bach? Can we put Bach in there too? Yeah. At least okay. there was Bach. Let, let's run on this rabbit trail. For you, <laughs> why Bach? I mean, because you are very decorated musically. Why did you single out Bach? Oh, I mean, shoot, we should do a podcast on Bach next. We could do that. Just because in the same way that Shakespeare is so deeply prolific and deeply heartfelt, I feel the same way about Bach's phrases that you feel about his word Shakespeare really I feel equally about Shakespeare's words too but do you know what yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah like yeah the perfect craft and like you can hear Bach wherever you hear it and you're like oh but that's so good that is so mm. good who thought to put all of the notes together like that it's so good right which is how you feel about Shakespeare absolutely and it's like this <laughs> thrill to your heart when you hear it because yeah because it just all is so right and fits so it's well so together. right. <laughs> Absolutely. I seriously was thinking, I was like, I'm in a high school in yes. Ohio. Yes. And I'm seeing these yes. actors perform with no lighting, with no yes. music, and with no amplification, with nothing. Yes. And I am just enthralled by just the words coming out of their mouth. And yes. I mean they they performed really well, but they had all what, it, what was it's the line now how all uh occasions do inform against me it's a hamlet line it's like yeah. all occasions are formed against them and they were still like yeah, knocking yeah. it out of the park it was yeah. so great yeah and if somebody just does the merest job right of i mean your actors were good and embodied it but even if somebody's not a great performer and you hear 
like the yep. notes of Bach, like it is enough. Mm. Right? It's there. It's there. Oh, I'm so glad you got that. We called you. We called you. You did. And I was in you, your family yes. called me. It was and, your birthday, um, Tim. I was in there because it was my birthday. That's right. I was watching Shakespeare in a in a Ohio <laughs> high school. It what was a great way. way. If my family could have been there with me, it was the only way that it could have made it better. Yeah. <laughs> so one more question and then Emily, I'd like to start getting some final thoughts about our journey with Richard, our very bloody journey with Richard the mm. third. Um, and I, and I am going to close the play with the last lines, famous lines okay. from Richard the third in which he really needs a horse, by the way, oh. my kingdom for a horse, yeah. you know, it's kind of part of the lexicon of Shakespeare, my kingdom for a horse. This is, this is Richard knowing that he's overrun on the battlefield and he's calling somebody for a horse. Did you get the very first line of his monologue? I was just going to say. Were you really? Yes. Because it's almost, I mean, I wonder how somebody plays it, but it's almost like he's waking up, like shaking himself. Yes. Give me another horse, bind up my wounds. So he already has a premonition of what's going to happen. And then, and, and, and from this monologue, he says, my conscience, he's mad. Oh, coward conscience, right? Mm. Um, Once he gets to the battlefield. He says, let not our babbling dreams affright our souls. Conscience is but a word that cowards use. Oh, wow. Advised at first to keep the strong in awe. Our strong arms be our conscience, swords our law. So he, um, in the glaring light of day, shoves off all of his, what could be, what could be termed inward looking, right? He just yeah. it all off. Have mercy, Jesu. Yeah. Like at the beginning of the second line. He's right there. He's right there. He's done with it. But that's so true to human nature too, isn't it? Like when you're down, oh, help me. God, help me. And then, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm doing fine. (laughs) Yeah, actually, I can stand up. I got this. I'll take it back. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Well, that's what's so good about Buckingham's words. Like I played around with asking you. Yes. How I'm getting it. Yes. I played around with it. Yeah, I feel like Buckingham is, he manages, despite being Richard's henchman, he manages to kind of turn around at the end. He does. You get, yeah. I've got some respect for Buckingham. Yeah, that's clear. That's clear repentance. And he's fitting that he should die. He owns his own part in the bloodbath. Hey, um, can I ask you a question? Yeah, please. Before I didn't ask you this before we started recording, but I just saw it again and I was thinking, ah, oh. so when I've been thinking about this as seed to some of his other plays, did you think yeah. that Richmond's speech to his soldiers was rather Crispin Day-like? Oh, I did think that. Yeah. Very much like Henry V, like yeah. on the side. The, you know? the famous, famous, I mean, like if there has ever been a great speech to rattle, to rally battle troops. Yeah. That's probably the pinnacle. And if there's ever an occasion to give a great speech, it's it's that's the occasion when like men are facing their deaths yeah. and they're severely outnumbered and they're yeah. facing an incredible mighty foe. Yeah. If you ever need to be inspired and motivated, that is the occasion. 
And maybe the best of all time is that St. Crispin's Day speech. And yes, Richard's speech did remind me of that. Yeah. um, Richmond, you mean? Yeah. Richmond. I'm sorry, Richmond. (laughs) Not Richard. Definitely not Richard. Richard. (laughs) I know. I mean, I, when I thought, oh, and he, um, and Richmond really embodies like the, um, the angel, I mean, or not the angel of revenge, but like the chastisement of the Lord. He takes that upon himself. Like he is the meeting out of justice. Uh, but I, I loved it. Do you know how, where I felt that recently? Maybe we shouldn't say, Never mind. What? What? Why? Well, it's, I don't know if it's politics. I just was thinking of Zelensky's speeches at the beginning of the Ukraine war. I felt an echo of Shakespeare to me. They're like, yes, Did I'll, you really? I'll stand up and fight for you. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like yeah. that, the noble, the noblest of taking up and defending that which you love. Yeah. And that's what <laughs> Richmond calls them to here. He says, you love England. It's been befouled. Stand up and make it right. Yeah. Mm. It's great. Go join the army. Let's go. (laughs) (laughs) I started to say something, but I'll I'll stay out of, we we take pains to stay out of politics. I think mentioning Zelensky is like a great inspired warrior president is totally legit. It's totally legit. Okay. I wasn't sure. I buy it. But I mean, when you know his story too, he very much knows the great orators of the past. And so it's not a surprise. Oh, does he really? Yes. Yeah. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. Um, The opening of his TV show called uh, Servant of the People, where he Uh plays a president, right? Who becomes president. Yeah. He um, has Plutarch. He no way. Plutarch. Yes, he has Plutarch sitting there and talking about what a leader is meant to be and how a leader is supposed to go forth in these troubled times, and that is who he looks to. So his no training way. is um, clearly in the orators of the past, and it's referenced actually throughout that show. Um, for guests who don't know who Plutarch is, oh. Plutarch is the great Roman writer who takes um, characters from both Greece and Rome, exemplary characters, right? And he holds mm-hmm, up those mm-hmm. who are not, he has mm-hmm. a... Yeah, he is a tribute to Alcibiades, yeah, he, has, he does not consider no herb noble admirable. admirable. Yeah. But he holds up these traits and he says, these are the traits of good leaders, right? And so there's a whole series of Plutarch's lives where he... Um, goes through the famous men of the past and holds them up to scrutiny and says, you should admire this and you should not admire that. Shakespeare, we know, was deeply influenced by Plutarch. Yeah. Yep. And you can see, you can see it in some of like his oratory ability. Surely he, I mean, like having learned from Plutarch. Yes. That's part of where he got it. He, He knew the masters, one of the talks that I gave, I hate to keep going back to this. Oh, it's great. Um, but I gave, one of the talks that I gave was about Shakespeare's word coining oh, genius. Uh-huh. And so I just gave a little bit of his, kind of what they think his educational history was. And it was in so many ways what the classical education movement is all about. Yeah. It's like learning at the feet of the absolute masters and imitating them, like yes. learning how to imitate yes. them. And so so Shakespeare would have been imitating 
Virgil, who we mentioned, author of the Aeneid, yes. Homer, and also Plutarch, yes. and all of those great ancient masters. Yes, as I guess, as is Selensky's. It's just such a great reminder that the reason that we read all of these is to be in conversation with these, you know, not to yeah. um, lionize them or freeze them in time, but to be in conversation with them. Yeah. Right. And we're like, it's the conversation continues even now. Um, A side note, and then I promise we're going to start like, moving <laughs> toward the end. There's so much I to watched, talk about. I know. I watched this movie, Air, about Michael Jordan. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, nice my friend it. recommended it to me. And while I was traveling, I was like, I've got some time. I'm going to watch just yeah. some brain candy. And I worshipped Michael Jordan. I I had fr- my best friend in when I was in eighth grade broke his femur bone in an accident. Ugh. Jay Warren. Jay, a shout out to Jay. And I went and visited him every day in the summer because I didn't know what else to do. He was my best friend. Our whole summers were spent together. What else was I going to do but go hang out with my friend in the hospital room? Because he was in traction. He had a pin in his shin to kind of keep his femur bones growing back the right way. Anyway, I did it just because I loved Jay. And at the end of the summer when he was going home, um, Jay's parents bought me a pair of the original Air Jordans, Air yeah. Jordan ones. You had original Air Jordans. I had original Air Jordans. What? They were a hundred dollars. I mean, ridiculous. which was an astronomical amount for tennis shoes back in the <laughs> back day. In the like, day. <laughs> oh man, and it meant so much to me. I was like, oh, I cannot believe this. So the movie Air is about about Nike signing Michael Jordan. Yeah, right. In it, there's a story told about. George, I think, Raveling, who was USC's head coach. You're like, where are we going here, Tim? This is about oratory. It is about oratory. Okay. The story that George Raveling tells in air is that he said he went to a speech and it was the greatest speech he had ever heard in his life. It was incredible. And he went up to the speaker afterwards and he said, Dr. King, that's the best speech I've ever heard in my life. And I'm listening to this in the movie. I'm like, is this a true story? This can't be a true story. This is a true story. He went up to Dr. King at the I Have a Dream speech in Washington. I swear. And he said, Dr. King, that's the greatest speech I've ever heard. And And he said, I think he asked Dr. King for his notes. Dr. King pulls the notes out of his suit jacket and gives it to Coach Raveling. And then later on, this is before he's coach raveling, he's just a young man. He opens the speech and he's reading it. And he said, he gets to halfway and he's looking for, yeah. I have a dream. Yeah. I have a dream. Yeah. He's it's like, not there. it's not in there. Oh my gosh. And so apparently, apparently this is what happened. King got halfway through his speech and he realized, oh my gosh, the people aren't really with me. And this is the moment. <laughs> This is the moment. And he went off script Go, Dr. for the second King. half of that speech, which is like, I mean, in 20th century oratory, there's nothing that matches it. Like, I don't even know, like no. maybe some, like one of Winston Churchill's World War II radio addresses yeah. are always mentioned, you know, yeah. but it's like, Finest it's hour. one of the 
absolute all-timers, and he made it up. It was incredible. Let's think about, I mean, because he says, I have a dream. If you think of the other big speeches, like, for instance, JFK, Ich bin ein Berliner. That's another Uh one. But they all have the anaphora. They all have the repeated clause. It gives people something to hang on to, right? Yes, they do. They do. And that's, oh, that is amazing. And this is true? Amazing. This is true. And that is why you practice all the time so that when the time comes, you can yeah. off script and it can be amazing. Yeah. And look <laughs> at what happened. Oh, my well, god! And also be brilliant. So it does help. To- yeah. <laughs> Last thing. Um, if anybody gets a chance to. Uh, listen to Martin Luther King's last speech that he ever gave the night before he was assassinated in Memphis. He was, I think it was to a black pastors gathering and he basically gives an overview of Western civilization kind of off the cuff. Yeah. It's fantastic. It is. It's really fantastic. There might, I think there's a YouTube recording of it. Yeah. It's really worth your time. It's really wonderful. Emily, back to Richard III. Um, <laughs> having gone through the play, and I'm going to play the audio of, of uh, Richard III's last moments um, as we close, but having gone through the play again, what surprised you this time? I think what surprised me, and I would have to guess, and it's impossible for me to know now, but um, I would guess that Richard III is often cut. Mm. Am I right in that? That they. Yeah, I think you're lot. right in that. Yeah. Um, and so I think part of what surprised me now was just how many words there were. Mm-hmm. So that, um, like the complexity of these scenes. I guess I was also surprised at the complexity of the scenes because he's got a lot of people that he's managing and keeping straight. So yeah. I think. Um. Because I am quite certain, I don't remember certain scenes from having seen it staged before. And um, I think that surprised me. Just, I mean, it's long, you know, it's one of, it's one of it's the longest long. plays. And just the amount of words and the amount of people. And um, if it feels like Shakespeare is juggling a lot of balls and he manages to bring them all together. I would just, I, I would love to read. Are you ending with a horse, a horse, my kid, yeah. a horse? Yeah. We have to you, read, read it. Read it. it, read it. I, I think people would love to hear it twice. Well, no, no. I want to read Richmond's words, which come after this, because Richmond ends the play, you know, yes. which is how, yeah. like, Macbeth ends. I mean, a lot of these, it brings together, like, in the tragedies, who ends Lear? Who's left that ends Lear? Is it Albany that ends Lear? I think so. It's Albany that ends Lear. So kind of the person who's going to move into the future from these tragedies, right? But uh, Richmond says, proclaim a pardon to the soldiers fled, that in submission will return to us. And then as we have taken the sacrament, we will unite the white rose and the red. Smile heaven upon this fair conjunction that long have frowned upon their enmity. What traitor hears me and says, not amen. England hath long been mad and scarred herself. The brother blindly shed the brother's blood. The father rashly slaughtered his own son. The son compelled been butchered to the sire. All this divided York and Lancaster, divided in their dire division. Now civil wounds are stopped. Peace lives again, that she may long live here. God say amen. 
So it's a fitting end to this play of internecine yeah. struggle. Yeah. What surprised you? It is. I think the length did. To go, I mean, I'm kind of riffing off you, okay. but um, I always think with characters that I find really compelling, what it, what it would be like to play, yeah. you know, this character. Yeah. Um, I, I, I love Mark Antony and Julius yeah. Caesar. I just, I love him. And I was thinking about, gosh, Richard III would be fun to play. Yeah. And I think I'd probably die. I think I would probably die. <laughs> yeah, it is so, it would be so hard to play this role. Which is maybe part of the reason a lot of it gets cut. Well, and two, now you have to have a history lesson before you read this play in order to keep yeah. straight who is who. And so right. I'm sure many directors now decide nobody can keep straight who all these people are. Yeah, right. Don't you think? Oh, they there's so many characters. Yeah, yeah. And if we were Brits from the time, yes. we would be like, oh, man, yeah. Yeah, that's who. Buckingham and Richmond. Yeah. I know all these guys. Yeah. They're part of our legacy. Yeah. Just like, you know, when we see Hamilton, we know exactly. a lot of those characters. Right. Exactly. But But it's harder being an American who just doesn't know British history very well. Yeah. Yep. Emily, thank you for being on the show. I loved it. It's been so fun, Tim. I love it, too. It's been really, really fun. Hey, some people have been reaching out to me. Uh because I mentioned that I have a website in which people can download free scenes for performance. Super helpful. And I just want to mention it because I've not mentioned it many times in the past. And, I, and I'm kind of, I'm urging myself to steer people toward timteachesshakespeare.com. And there's also on the website uh, kind of a method that I have for teaching Shakespeare to newcomers if you want to try to perform Shakespeare. So... Tim teaches Shakespeare.com. And Emily, let's listen to the closing speech from Richard III, his kingdom for a horse. Rescue! My Lord of Norfolk, rescue, rescue! The king enacts more wonders than a man, daring and opposite to every danger. His horse is slain, and all on foot he fights, seeking for Richmond in the throat of death. Rescue, fair lord, or else the day is lost! A horse! A horse! My kingdom for a horse! Withdraw, my lord! I'll help you to a horse! Slave! I have set my life upon a cast, and I will stand the hazard of the die! I think there be six Richmonds in the field. Five have I slain today instead of him! A horse. A horse. My kingdom for a horse. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.